Not long ago, we could differentiate between right and wrong, between good and evil, between what was true and what was not true. And yet we are living at a time in our culture and our media presence that is telling us that that which was good is now evil and that which is evil is now good. Our culture is concerned about sustainability, about being green, about the environment, about whether a politician kills a fly or a spider, while 1.2 million children are murdered each year by convenience. Our brave new world celebrates evil, objectifies women into sexual objects and pornography and rap. It celebrates the unbridled immorality of a culture that has lost its common sense and lost its mind. And for those who hold to believe in this book, the Bible, the Word of God, the Scripture, we will be and continue to be marginalized and made fun of and mocked and vilified. And it is a brave new world in which Christianity needs a place and a foothold more than any other time. And it is our context in which we conclude the Gospel of Luke. I want to take you first to Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 4 to hear his words as he charged the older Paul, probably the one who led Luke to Christ in Troas, the older Paul writing the younger Timothy. This is his final piece of literature that we have. And as he faces his death and his future with Christ, he's concerned for Timothy and the church he leaves behind. 2 Timothy 4, beginning at verse 1, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and Jesus Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. And they will turn away their ears from truth and turn aside to myths. But you... Be sober in all things. Endure hardship. Do the work of the evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. The time is here. Certainly it happens in different cultures and seasons and times, but we can certainly apply it today to a culture and even a Christian church that does not want to hear sound doctrine. They do not want to hear black and white truth. They want to hear love and kindness and gentleness and be free to do whatever they want to do. Luke was written, as we've talked in chapter 1, verse 4, so that you might know the exact truth about the person and work of Jesus Christ. And Luke, the physician, goes through extraordinary language and story and recounting the gospel through the Spirit's power to give us a document unparalleled even in comparison to the other three gospel records. What do we learn from our study for two some years in the book of Luke. And I want to suggest seven lessons and seven so what's. Number one, the first lesson, trust the word of God. Trust the word of God. As he began chapter 1, 4, that you might know the truth. And what does Luke do? He marshals forth Old Testament prophecies, promises, eyewitness accounts, and even the very voice of God to help us understand we can trust the word of God. When he chooses Elizabeth and Zacharias to bear John the Baptist, here's an old couple. She's beyond childbearing. She's beyond menopause. They never had children. And a divine election chooses them to be the parents of John the Baptist. 
In a similar way, he approaches a young virgin named Mary, who's not married, never been with a man, and he divinely elects her to bear the Messiah. He chooses these people, and we're told in his word the story of the Baptist being the forerunner and Jesus being the one he's going to preach about and prepare the Jew to hear. We hear the confirmation of these promises from an old man named Simeon, who was told of God's Spirit he wouldn't die until he'd seen the Christ, the Messiah. And as an old man in the temple complex, one day Mary and Joseph happened to be bringing Jesus up to offer the sacrifice for the newly born baby. And who do they encounter but Simeon? And he takes the child and holds the child in his hands and blesses God for the visitation that he was able to see. Now he can die because he saw the promise of God. He held and saw the Messiah with his own two hands. If that's not enough, when Jesus is baptized in chapter 3, we hear this voice from heaven when the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus like a dove. And then the voice says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. The acknowledgement of a Trinitarian Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all come to bear. God's own voice saying, this is my son. This is all from the word of God. The eyewitness testimonies, the couples who are chosen, individuals who are chosen, all the prophecies fulfilled. And finally, Jesus' own words. As he teaches, he's speaking the very word of God. It is God's word as he opens his mouth. And his opponents don't like it because they say he teaches as one who has authority. You see, rabbinic teaching was case law. You cited what others said. You never said, I say. And so when Jesus teaches with authority, it amazes the crowd. It offends the righteous and the priest of the day. They're saying, he's teaching with authority. He's pretending he's God. Well, no, he is God. And he can teach with that authority because he speaks God as God, as the fully God man. Number one, trust the word of God. So what? Your Bible is an inexhaustible source, inexhaustible food for the rest of your life. Your Bible is an inexhaustible supply, God's Word in your life for the rest of your life. The evidence is overwhelming. I've been studying the Bible for close to 35, 40 years now, and it amazes me how much I study it and try to pound my head against it. I never doubt it at all. I believe it all the more. And I know all the tripwires and all the little things that are questionable that most people don't know because I had to study those when I was in the cemetery, seminary. <laughs> I have more confidence in the text today than I've ever had in my life. It is the very word of God. Spurgeon said no one ever outgrows the scripture. It widens and deepens with our years. This is the very word of God. It's not man's opinion. It's not the culture's opinion. It's not the result of a focus group. It's not the result of how many followers it has. Your scripture is enough for the rest of your life if you spend time with it. Number two, Jesus is the Son of God and the Son of Man. The Son of God, Son of Man are two references used. Luke loves to use Son of Man, the fully man, fully God aspect. And what does this mean? To be fully God and fully man, he had a human lineage. He was born. He's a baby. He grows up. He's 12-some years old. We have a picture, one little snapshot in the temple when he's talking to the priest and teaching and learning from these teachers, and they're amazed at what this young boy knows. He's in submission to his parents until he comes to his 30s when he goes into a public ministry. At that point, the God-man now is in full presence, we would say, and he goes out speaking as the Son of God. 
He will have power and authority over demons, disease, over nature, over the consequences of sin. And the Son of Man will be the one who will withstand temptations. Why would it make any difference if he was fully God, fully man, if he was unable to be tempted? Why would Satan even harass him if he wasn't fully human? Why did the demons fear when Jesus comes and says, wait, it's not our time. The demons are afraid of Christ. Satan is tempting Christ, and we treat him as, oh, by the way. The spiritual realm knows who he is, and the Scripture confirms this is the Son of Man. The Son of Man will have power over the laws of biology, of physics, of time. They don't apply to him. He can move in and out of them whenever he wills. His Father wants him to. The Son of Man will have ministry over things that no one else has ever done before. He'll give sight to the blind, a miracle reserved for the Messiah. He'll raise dead people. No one had ever done that before. And he will have power even in the political realm. When it seems as though Herod and Pilate and others have power, he's still in control. Fully God, fully man. He's not threatened by man. So what, number two? Your Christ is probably far more than you think. Christ is probably far more than we think. I fear we need a radical reformation of our view of Jesus. He's not Gandhi-like. He's not a social reformer. He's not a do-gooder. He's the God-man. When we talk about the word fear in the Bible, we often say that means to respect someone, that people, you're to have reverence and fear toward God, and we're to respect them. I think it's true, but I think it's lost its punch. When humans saw angels, they were terrified. When John sees the angel on Patmos, which is one of my favorite verses in all the Scripture, he fell on his face like a dead man. That's a good book title, isn't it? Like a dead man. He fell on his face like he was terrified. And yet we've domesticated this Jesus and made him in our image and put him over in a corner when we need him. He's fully God. And I think if there could be a holy fear of Christ, it would be a good thing. That when you open his word, it's not just counselor wisdom, it's God talking to you. And the Christ is the embodiment of God in human form so we can get our hands around what is God like. You look at Jesus Christ. And to understand who this Jesus is, to wonder at him, to awe at him, to have a reverential fear of him, and I don't mean to be afraid in the sense of cowering in the corner, but that he would suck the air out of the room if you were to encounter him. Third, Christ turns religion on its head. The Beatitudes, as they're recorded in Luke in chapter 6, are a little different view than the other Gospels, but he does the same thing. He turns the righteous and the religious of the day on their head and shows them how wrong they are. For example, in 631, he says, treat others the same way you would want them to treat you. Great proverb, great principle. What's he saying? He's accusing the righteous and the priest of the day for, thank God I'm not like them. Thank God I'm not a woman. Thank God I'm not a Gentile dog. Thank God I'm not a sinner. And he's excoriating them, saying, no, you treat people just the way you would want to be treated. That's the kingdom of God. He goes on in 646 and says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not, say, do, not do what I say? 
If you call me God and you don't obey me, why call me God? You're to keep the law. You were to instruct people. You were to teach them how to care for the widow and the orphan. You were to do these things. You were handed through the Aaronic priesthood, the order of teaching the word to God's people, and you failed. And he turns religion on its head. You tithe mint and cumin. You forget the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and compassion. The religious in all of us, we've got this do and don't think in our head. The religious is the hypocrite. We're incensed when other people do bad and they aren't punished for it. We get all righteous indignation when injustice goes unpunished. And that's the group he's addressing to. So what, number three? Following Christ is a relationship, not a religion. Following Christ is a relationship, not a religion. Only as you know someone can you have a relationship with them. Cindy and I, coming close to 34 years of marriage, we know each other pretty well. I know what she likes and what she doesn't like. I know what buttons to switch. I know what things to aggravate her if I want to. I know how to joust her. I also know what her sense of humor is. I know how to help her. I know how to encourage her. Because we've been working at this a long time. And I know her pretty well, and she knows me pretty well. What does a relationship require? Time and a common interest. Time and a common interest. How do you have a relationship with God? Time and a common interest. This is the mind of God in print. You spend any time in it? If it is the very Word of God, if it is the all that we need for faith and life and salvation, how do I have a relationship with a God I can't talk to over a cup of coffee? I can't see Him. I can't Skype with Him. Can't get him on the phone. Can't make an appointment with him. Well, yes, you can because the mind of God's in print and it's in all sorts of devices and sizes and shapes. And I, I pr prefer the giant print at this stage of my life. I am very thankful for the giant print. I got to know him to be related to him. And if I have a relationship with him, I want to please him. I don't please him by being better and doing good things. I please him by knowing how to worship him, how to be the kind of man he wants me to be, the kind of husband, the kind of father, the kind of worker. And if I have a relationship with God, it's very different than a religion. Somewhere in our brains, maybe when the church, when we were young, maybe the Sunday school teachers, maybe, in my case, the nuns, whoever taught you, you had this thing in your head, right and wrong, do's and don'ts. And if I do the things I'm not supposed to do, do the things I'm supposed to do, and maybe at the end I'll kind of balance out and I get to heaven and the scales will tip just a little bit, I did a little bit more good than I did bad. That seems to be in all of our minds. That somehow we get this idea of do's and don'ts. That's religion. God has accomplished it. It's done. There's no do's and don'ts. Our obedience is a thank you back to God, not a way of getting favor from God, not a way of somehow earning more stripes, if you will. Yes, the rewards for those who are faithful. But the objective of rewards is not to earn merit badges and have more than other Christians. The objective is rewards. When we see Christ, we have something to give him for all he's done for us. The motivation to say thank you to Christ is just that, that if you and I spent the rest of our lives thanking him, it'd still be insufficient for what he's done. Your life and mine are to be a thank you back to him. I have to know God, not by religion of do's and don'ts, but by 
a relationship with him. God's word, God's spirit, and God's people help me in understanding what that relationship looks like. Religion tries to do the right things. A relationship tries to know the person that we worship. Four, Christ is in control. He commands, he controls demons in Chapter 8, verse 26, the Gerasenes demoniac who comes out and he asks him what his name is and it's legion. There's thousand or more perhaps in this individual. He throws them into the herd of swine. He controls them. He commands them. When he's going to help Jairus' child, uh, Jairus' child is sick and he's going to help the sick child and along the way a woman brushes up against the hem of his robe and she's cured and Jesus stops and says, someone touched me. I felt power go out from me. The disciples pejoratively and comically say, how are we supposed to know who touched you, paraphrased? Look at the people around us, Lord. No, I felt power go out from me. And from the crowds, a woman emerges, I suspect somewhat sheepishly, and she admits she touched his robe. And she was cured from a 12-year ailment she had. In that delay, word comes from Jairus' home, don't trouble the teacher, it's too late. Child's dead. Jesus is in control. He's intending to go help Jairus' daughter. Now she's dead because this woman interrupted the process. Was Christ out of control? Did someone else control Christ's path? The human emotions expressed show how we look at bad things when they happen. Number one, Jairus is afraid now. Jesus says, don't be afraid. When he gets to the house, there's mourners and lamenters already there, already there crying and wailing and lamenting. Jesus comes in the, in the house and tells them he's going to see the, the child, and they laugh at him. They mock him. He takes the parents in. He resurrects the child, and then the parents are amazed. The emotions of fear, of weeping, of lamenting, of mocking, of now amazement. Christ was in control the entire time. He was never out of control realigning his schedule because he was interrupted. He was always in control, and he always had power to do what the Father had dispatched him to do. He'll give the disciples this power, and he'll send them out to heal and to cast out demons, and they'll see amazing things happen. And he'll show them, look, I'm in such control. Don't even take anything with you. Don't take an extra coat. Don't take food. Don't take a bag. Just go because you'll be prepared, provided for and on doors that they would knock and be welcome into those homes, they would care for them while they were there. And when the 70 came back rejoicing at all that they had seen and done, Christ was in control of everything as he sent them out. And in the background, the most powerful king on the planet, literally, Herod, can't get an audience with this guy to save his life. And he keeps trying to send people to bring Jesus back. I want to see this guy. I want to meet this guy. I want to see what he's, what he's like. I want to see a show, basically. And the most powerful king on the planet can't get a carpenter on foot with all his power to come see him because Christ is in control. And when the two puppet authorities, Pilate and Herod, are debating what to do with this Jesus, even in that before his crucifixion, Christ controls the entire scene. So at number four, no matter what your circumstances or mine try to tell us, God is sovereign. No matter what your experience or bad things that happen to us, no matter what the world tries to tell us about our God, he is still sovereign. He is still in control. Nothing can thwart God's plan for your life. Nothing can thwart 
in God's plan for your life. True, you and I can rebel and choose to sin and go off the deep end, so to speak. But even if we do that, he will not let it go very far. Either his Holy Spirit will bring us back by beating us up and convicting us of our sin, or he may say, your time is up. And I've known some very young people who have professed Christ and lived a life that was not what Christ wanted very deeply, and life, God took them away. There are times when God says enough. But for the repentant, for the obedient, for the humble, for the growing Christian, nothing can thwart God's plan for your life. My daughter's dead. Either it's part of God's plan or he's going to remedy it. It's not going to change God's power. We live in a fallen world. Bad things happen. Disappointing things happen. Injustice happens. Christians treat Christians very poorly, sometimes worse than the world treats one another. And we scratch our heads and say, well, these are Christians. Why are these happening? Why, Lord? Why, why, why? Maturity is when you realize most of your why questions will never be answered this side of heaven. And it's just a waste of time and energy to wonder why. Why is this going on? Why is, this, why is my son? Why is my daughter? Why is my husband? You know what? Ask that all you want. You may never get an answer. But asking how you live faithfully when life isn't working, that's the question. How do I believe and trust when the circumstances and experiences tell me not to? That's faith. That's belief. No matter what your circumstance tries to tell you, he's sovereign. He's not derelict. He's not discompassionate. He's not capricious. He's all-knowing. He's sovereign. He's a big God. Five, Christ wants disciples. In chapter 9, the 70 go out and come back, and we're given a vivid description of some that want to be disciples. Well, let me first go bury my parents. Let me go say goodbye to my family. He shows these, what I would call, lame excuses. Jesus said, no. First, uh, chapter 9, verse 62, he says, no one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Either you're going to be my disciple or you're not. There's no in-between here. No playing around with this. Discipleship is a costly experience. He gives us examples of what discipleship means. It's a choice. They're kingdom-focused. They're going to be rejected. They'll have hardships. They're going to be faithful and believe and learn and mature. They're also going to be stewards. In chapter 12, 13, and 14, he gives many examples about what stewardship is. How are you using what I give you? He's very interested in that. In chapter 12, verse 48, we read, For everyone who has been given much, much will be required. In the context of a disciple and a steward. When we think about our circumstances, we're always comparing ourselves to someone else who has bigger, better, nor more. Let me level the playing field for you today for just a moment. If you're in this room, you have more than the world. You travel to Nigeria, Sudan, Comus. You go to some Latin cultures. You go into the heart of Africa. You go into places in Nigeria where I've been, Sudan, where Omar and where Lloyd and Meredith and others go again and again and again. You go to Peru and see. If you have some kind of structure that's a home, if you have food to eat, you have a small plot of ground that you're growing something on and a few chickens and maybe a goat, you're a very well-off person. 
They have no health insurance. They have no pension plan. They have no job security. They can't sue their employer if their employer does something wrong to them. Health care, what does that mean? Hospitals, only for those who get there in time before they die. That's 90 plus percent of the population on the world, on the earth. You and I think we're better than them? Really? And you'll find some of the most joyful people on the planet who have nothing. And you come over here, and we're all obsessed with stuff. I am too. Stuff isn't bad. Wealth is not bad. How we use it is the issue. Open-handedly, God owns it. We give generously. We give freely, not under compulsion. We give wisely. We use the resources. That's what a steward does. Remember, some had more talents than others. It's universally true. We will be required to give an account as disciples of how we use what God's entrusted us. And by the way, don't compare yourself to anybody else. Materialism and consumerism will lose their grasp on you when you only compare yourself. Cindy and I compare how do we live with what we have before God, period. It's so liberating and so freeing. I'm not comparing myself to what anybody else does. I'll learn from other people, absolutely. But I'm not comparing myself to what they do or don't do, or what they have or what they don't give. That's, that's a waste of time. He's not asking you to measure someone else's stewardship. He's saying, what are you doing with what you've been given? A disciple is also a steward. So what, number five? A disciple looks like his or her teacher. A disciple should look like Christ. It sounds a bit self-promoting, uh, and I don't intend it to, but it's the best illustration I can give you. There are two men in my life. Floyd, who was my mentor for 15 years, is with the Lord now, and a professor at the seminary who taught me. He's taught for over 65 years almost at Dallas Seminary. He's with the Lord now as well. And those two men influenced me more than any other people on the planet. And Floyd will always be the better father and husband that I always, it's the benchmark. I wish I could be as great a husband and father as Floyd was. He was an incredible dad, an incredible husband to his bride. And when I look at Prof, I go, oh, I wish I could know the scripture and teach and empower and motivate people the way this guy did. He was un, and uncanny with the way he could make people want to read the scripture and study the Bible for all, all their life and for all their worth. Oh, if I could be those two people and I, I can turn them into idols, which of course is wrong. But their fingerprints are on me deeply. And if someone who knows one of those individuals well says, you know, that sounds a lot like Floyd. That sounds a lot like Prof. I can take that one of two ways. I choose to take it the good way. A student should look like his teacher. The very question is, do you and I look like Christ? That's a hard question. Which one of us is going to say, I look like Christ? I'll, I'll play Jesus in the Easter pageant. Yeah, I'm up for that. None of us will do that. But he's our, not just example, he's our Savior, and we're to be like him, we're to follow him. A disciple should look like his teacher, should sound like his teacher, to be a student of Jesus. If people don't know we're followers of Christ, there's a fundamental problem. Six, 
Christ cares about the lost. He cares about the lost. We have the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. Each one, when found, great rejoicing occurs. Great stories, very powerful. They go across cultures and time. If you lose something of value, you tear the house up trying to find it. If you lose a son, what will you do to get your son back? And of course, the prodigal becomes the culmination of the lost story. We have the older and the younger, the younger who squanders, who goes to his father and says, I wish you were dead, essentially. Give me my share of the inheritance. He didn't divide things up in those days, but he does it anyway. And he squanders it on loose living. He's feeding the pigs carob pods, and he's hungry. And he goes, my father's servants, the hired hands, have a better deal than I do. I know what I'll do. He comes to his senses, remember? I know what I'll do. I'll go back and I'll plead my father, treat me like a hired man. And he rehearses his speech on the way to go see his father. When he returns to see his father, of course, he welcomes him. Hardly lets the boy get any of the speech out. He welcomes him back, a ring on his finger, a robe, sandals on him. We have a celebration. My son who was dead is alive. He's lost. He's found. It's a time of partying. Let's have a party. And the older brother doesn't respond. He won't come in. That son of yours and the bitterness of the older brother comes out. There's two prodigals in the story. Just because he followed the rules did not mean he was a better son. In fact, he's more egregious because he's righteous and legalistic about what he's done. I've always done whatever you told me. I did the box. Check, 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 check. I'm better. That's what he's saying. You never gave me a party. And this son of yours, who's the more guilty? Christ came, and probably the key verse of the gospel is 19.10, to seek and save the lost. That's why he came. And the lost is illustrated in the sheep and the coin, and more importantly, the son. So what, number six? The repentant will hear the truth and own his or her sin. The repentant will hear the truth and own their sin. We live in a blame, dodge, ignore, cover up, or make it right culture. We say... What used to be sin is not sin anymore. There's nothing wrong anymore. It's what's true for you. And our culture has turned into an entitlement, sin, insatiable monster. It's not going to stop until we stop enabling people. Parents, you got a hard row to train your children not to think they deserve everything. Just like you and me, they deserve death and hell. That's a joyful nose. Always only thinking about self. Blame everyone else. It's your fault. It's my parents' fault. My sister's fault. My brother's fault. Employer's fault. And we indulge in the world and the flesh, and we say it's all right. But the humble, I was wrong. My fault. I take the blame. That's the repentant. No finger pointing, no entitlement. Sure, other people do things that are wrong, but we know we did wrong. The humble and tender-hearted toward God is quick to repent. When was the last time you repented about anything? And if you didn't repent, does that mean you don't sin? The gospel is for the sinner. 
The truth of Christ is for the man or woman who knows they're in trouble, who admits their sin. Seven, there's only two responses to Jesus. Only two. We looked at it in detail, but I want to return to Luke 23, verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you the Christ or not? Save yourself and us. But the other answered in rebuking him, said, Do you not even fear God, since we, you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we, indeed, are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he, Jesus, said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. As I said before, each of those criminals were guilty of a capital offense. They're being killed for their crimes. One of them is demanding, if you're the Christ, save yourself and us. Do something about it. The other one is pleading, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? Perfect illustration of all humanity. You're on one side of the cross to the other. God, if you will, I can't love a God who, I can't believe in a God who, fill in the blank. I don't, how can you allow evil, AIDS, orphans, how, I mean, God, you're unfair. How, only one way. I got nothing to offer. Will you help me? One demands, one pleads. All humanity. And the central figure, who the one thief says so eloquently, we on our part deserve what we're getting. He has done nothing wrong. He recognizes the innocence of this Jesus. And he trusts in him. And Christ says, today you'll be in paradise. So finally, the last so what, have you responded to Christ? Or maybe how are you responding to Christ? Have you trusted him? If you're here today and you don't know Christ, that he lived, he died, he was buried, the burial confirms his death, he's resurrected from the dead, and any and all who believe in him are given a free gift called eternal life. He paid for your sins for mine, in our place, on our behalf, instead of us. He dies. And any and all who trust in Christ and Christ alone are given a free gift called eternal life. Your sins are forgiven. You're adopted as a child. His spirit indwells you. And your life has changed forever. And if you never come to Christ, that's the most important decision you will ever make, is to know that you know that you know that you know in whom you believe and why. For the believer in Christ, for those of us who know Christ, how do we respond to him? How are we living for him? Someone wrote of Luke's life. We don't know the veracity of the quotation. He served the Lord without distraction, having neither wife nor children, and at the age 84, he fell asleep, full of the Holy Spirit. The doctor who followed Paul, the doctor who penned the book we just finished, Stott writes of Jesus, if he had not been man, he could not have redeemed men. If he had not been a righteous man, he could not have redeemed unrighteous men. And if he had not been God's son, he could not have redeemed men for God or made them sons of God. A disciple, a follower, looks like his teacher. Do you look like your Savior? Father, we thank you for your word that is timeless, that is inexhaustible. We thank you for the truth of the freedom we have right now to open this book and to learn who you are and how to then live.
Help us to be conformed more and more into the image of Christ and less and less away from the image of our sinful selves. We love you, Lord Jesus. Help us to love you well. In Christ's name, amen. Have a great week. God bless you.